This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Lawrence Jackson, author of the nonfiction book, Shelter. As a child, I would always ask my dad, my God, how could you accept segregation or discrimination? You know, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you rise up? We'll be back with Lawrence Jackson after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews. Hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters. Plus, you can feel good about supporting conversations like the one you're about to hear. And with your donation, you are saying yes to continuing this space for writers and readers and those curious about the artistic process. So let's be honest. There is so much free content out there, and I know I'm competing with it. And what you're listening to is free, but it is not without expense and hard costs and labor to make. And don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. But all told, from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours each episode. Other expenses are also involved, equipment, subscriptions to interview platforms, editing software, hosting services for the sound, and a website for the archive. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind you to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. 
In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash writers to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is nonfiction writer Lawrence Jackson. He is a biographer and critic whose work has appeared in Harper's Magazine, N Plus One, and Best American Essays. He teaches English and history at Johns Hopkins and founded the Billy Holiday Project for Liberation Arts. His book Shelter is a series of essays Lawrence Jackson wrote about moving back to Baltimore, the city he grew up in after a divorce in 2016. He writes about his complicated relationship with his neighborhood, the city, and its history. His new neighborhood, Homeland, is largely white and built on racial covenants. His essays focus on domesticity, inheritance, and Lawrence's experiences and insights into Black American life. We began the discussion with me sharing with Lawrence Jackson some themes I saw in his book and his response about what brought him to the page. These are really meditations on the hidden history that we can't see, but that not only built Baltimore, but built our country um, based on on slavery and racism and injustice. And you look at things like the foundation of your house, the architect, the neighborhood, the names of things, the emblems of things, the um, who who built the foundations. You look at church, you look at your family life, you look at your yard work, um, but it's all sort of through this lens of really looking at what is the history, what do we need to confront about race, and you know what what brought you to this moment. You know, I, I, I suppose if you if you, you looked at the um, the idea of irony, or um, if you uh, tried to think about um, what people mean when they say, "Oh, you know, I found out about that and I was shocked," and you would, I, I, I think that you would you would learn that those exclamations and that those um, literary tropes had reached a point of exhaustion when you tried to apply them to the black experience. And, and here's what I mean, like two of the, of the fascinating ironies for me that um, uh, uh, help, uh, uh, I, I think, the reader to sort of get at the experience that I wanted to uh, bring out onto the page. Um, the place that I went to high school in, uh, the, it's the very near suburb, just over the, um, the city line, in Baltimore, and it was a high school that had been located in the city until uh, the 1930s, when it, you know, sort of went into a larger campus uh, in Baltimore County. And all of this movement of of, of any family or group of people in a, a city like Baltimore, I mean, it is always reflecting upon some racial dynamic because uh, Baltimore had been the place of the largest number of freed people 
in urban America uh, in the antebellum era. So um, the, the, the thing that's always struck me about the high school that I attended was that for whatever reason, the um, structure of the buildings always seemed, um, you know, I don't know, glorious to me. Or there was there was something about the Gothic stone that uh, really uh, spoke to my 13, 14 year old self and the ideal that I had about American national belonging, citizenship, upward mobility. I mean, it just it really did sort of capture a bunch of those things. I had gone to a uh, for 10 years, I had gone to an elementary and middle school that was in the classic post-World War II brick box style, okay? And so then I went to um, Loyola High School in in Baltimore for high school. The person who designed the main academic building on my high school campus also designed the house that I'm living in today. And so it's a similar experience. When I uh, was uh, driving down the street, uh, this would be, you know, like... This is 30 years later. I'm in my late 40s when we moved, returned uh, to Baltimore. We were living in Atlanta, moved back to Baltimore. And I'm sort of struck by a particular design, a particular pattern of stone. It means something to me that's intangible about, you know, having achieved a particular kind of social class status. Uh, Martin Luther King used to talk about being integrated with power. Uh, it, 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 for whatever reason, you know, sort of captured some of those um, romantic and sentimental ideals, which is why in the book I have all of these epigraphs, you know, sort of from like Sir Walter Scott and uh, uh, John Bunyan and uh, 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 Venerable Bede. And, you know, I, I'm interested in like the place where the romanticism and Protestantism, you know, sort of uh, come together or have their, you know, sort of moment of genesis. So that would be one. And then another one would be that I'm in church. Another one of these these ironies that I say, I mean, it exceeds what I think, you know, we might uh, uh, find useful uh, with the uh, with the term irony. Uh, I'm in church one morning and with my son and my mom and, you know, we sort of have a community where we, you know, go to church and we sit in the same pew. And the woman in front of me turns around and I don't know, I don't even know how she knew precisely where I lived. And she says, oh, my father worked in your house. And she, you know, calls the name of the original owner and uh, this person I've known all my life, um, you know, imparts um, this detail that is absolutely the the other history, the the underside of history, um, the, uh, the 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 component um, that is uh, key in any full definition of reality, especially in a place like the United States, which is always going back and forth between being a total slave society or a society with slaves or a, a, a democratic society or a partially democratic society. Um, and and I'm, I'm reminded that even at this moment in my own life of relative um, economic uh, prosperity, uh, and I emphasize relativity here, uh, but that I'm still always a person who um, carries and inherits and um, embodies a legacy that is its antithesis. And, and, I, and I, I know it's easy to be confused on this point, but I am also a person who thinks that the work that um, 
Mr. Woods did in my house was completely honorable. I mean, he was a college graduate. Uh, he was a full-time postal worker. And um, I'm, I, I presume that this was also like, you know, sort of his supplementary um, side job. But I, 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 would, I would think of him as an absolutely honorable figure. I mean, very much not um, an Uncle Tom or one-dimensional servant or something like that. But I, I, I find it, you know, uh, uh, I can't say that I'm shocked to learn that or that it surprises me. Rather, you know, I've got to generate some kind of other term to um, define what is this particular sort of American experience. Um, like m many people from my generation, you know, were like profoundly influenced by the autobiography of Malcolm X. Or maybe I should say in the same way that someone like Spike Lee is influenced by that narrative collaboration between Alex Haley and Malcolm X. And Malcolm X goes to, um, to uh, the African continent um, in the middle of 1964 for several months. And he says that he's greeted when he gets to Nigeria uh, with the term Omawale. And Omawale is, uh, you know, Yoruba word for a son who has returned, but it winds up being a, a concept that's also quite significant for us who are coming out of urban America and uh, going back to it, or I suppose um, making, trying to make fruitful connections back to it. I have a, a very dear colleague in the city, a uh, writer named Dee Watkins, and he he um, he captures a, an, another kind of audience, I think, than the one that I get to. But he says, uh, you know, that the goal is not to make it out of the ghetto. The goal is to make it better. Or he doesn't use ghetto in that phrasing, but it's make, not make it out, but make it better. And it's it's that kind of thing. Uh, the, uh, the the person who has returned or who has come back that becomes the occasion for the essays. I mean, you know, I, I had this remarkable opportunity to come and teach at Johns Hopkins and I could I could uh, make a kind of an investment or a contribution in the city that I had grown up in. I mean, one of the things that I'm most proud of is the, the, the participation that I get to have in the church that I grew up in. I mean, I received a scholarship to go to college from my church. The scholarship was named after um, really probably the most consequential minister from the church who took the uh, Black Episcopalians really from the immediate uh, after effects of the Civil War and then through the early 20th century. And uh, it was a remarkable figure named George F. Bragg. It's the same church that actually also produces the very first um, black bishop of the entire Episcopal Church, Michael Curry, of course, who married, uh, what is it, the Prince of Windsor and Meghan Markle. I, I don't know what the titles are, but anyway, Meghan and Harry, um, and, you know, who's presiding at the funeral of um, George Herbert Walker Bush. So the, the book is, is, is trying to, you know, um, or using the occasion of my return, I think, to pull some of these, you know, sort of historical and um, uh, contemporary uh, 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 trends and struggles, uh, places of crisis and responsibility that we all share in common 
and to in, infuse them with a deep historical sense, um, such as I am able. I was joking with the audience the other day, or not so much joking, but I was saying, you know, like I teach in a history department and an English department today, but I'm a dilettante historian. I don't have any um, professional credentials to uh, lay claim to the mantle of the historian. So with all this is your intention to write this, what was your experience of actually writing it? Meaning like, what did you discover? What did it do for your craft of writing? And what did it do for your relationship with the history and present of where you live? The the thing maybe that I noticed with this project um, that might be slightly different from other things that I've done was that I did become uh, more comfortable with the idea that the audience might, um, that the reader might uh, make a connection with, um, I, I suppose, something that was, you know, could be understood as fairly fragmented um, or that was that was joined in this um, this concept of, you know, sort of following along with uh, the festival season from the Christian church that it would go Advent and Christmas and uh, 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 Lent and, you know, Easter and uh, Pentecost and, you know, sort of finally arrived to its conclusion, which is like ordinary time. Um, and, you know, I, I, I wanted in that way to um, also try to make it a somewhat optimistic um, rendering, possibly a little bit more optimistic than I might be in day to day life or in my own uh, internal reflection. So, you know, the, uh, the, the, the chapters do, I, I, I looked closely a couple of days ago and the chapters, they all do sort of conclude with, you know, like a, a, a chance for a brighter future. Um, but they are, you know, trying to work through uh, the difficulty and also this thing about um, uh, the anti-heroism. Somebody asked me at a reading a couple of days ago, well, you know, doesn't this sort of serve as a a point of entree for, for politics or, you know, aren't some of these the qualities that we would um, you know, hope to have in a particular kind of uh, politician. But I mean, that is also something that I was thinking about, you know, trying to trod mildly against, uh, which is, you know, the, the beatification and the hagiography of the, uh, the, you know, the devotions to the saints, the saint making process that always reduces um, the world of human complexity. And, I think with in some ways maybe I, I I had in the in the back of my mind that with this essay format, um, you know, you would always know that there was not going to be you know sort of the tidy um, uh, uh, dressing up of you know either myself as the narrator or uh, one of the other figures that um, makes their way into the into the um, uh, uh, account. Um, you asked, uh, what the, like, um, how, how has it, um, impacted or changed or, you know, anything with, um, my place in the neighborhood. And I, I would say, uh, I once looked up, you know, sort of systematically all of the, uh, the people on my street and it's, you know, very much, uh, an upper middle-class group. I mean, including, um, 
the heads of um, investment firms and uh, judges and prominent uh, 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 physicians and attorneys and that sort of thing, um, some government uh, officials or bureau chiefs. And I think that part of what I am also trying to work with in this account is, you know, what is really required to sort of get this group to to pay attention to the circumstance of their own day-to-day lives. And, and I, don't, I don't know that, that that, you know, will be necessarily effective or particularly impactful. Um, that is, uh, for me, an, another, you know, um, wrestling match, I guess I would say. The Episcopalian church that I belong to, you know, is sometimes thought of as like, I mean, you know, it's not d- 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 so distant from the um, the Catholic Church and its very formal uh, religious or worship um, ceremonies and rituals. Uh, sometimes can be thought of as like a high church that suppresses uh, emotion and um, suppresses really the uh, the full participation of the congregation. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, I'm, I'm I'm also trying to make an argument that. Uh, part of what is going to help us through um, the, I guess, the, the backdrop uh, enemy in this work is the, the um, neoliberal uh, economic arrangements and practices, but that part of what will help us um, achieve, you know, sort of greater human fulfillment and uh, uh, democratic participation, but then also uh, democratic economic arrangements is 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 going to come from the camp of um, of reason, and is going to come from uh, with a, a healthy contribution from from people who are in a strong position of leadership. But it does have something to do with like involving them in um, in a, a new or another kind of conversation with um, the the majority of us. I mean, I don't know. I think of myself as us. Um, and and so I, I wanted it to be useful or at least accessible on uh, multiple um, sides of the the class education race divide. But I will have to say, you know, Mitzi, it, it does remain to be seen, you know, like how it will be perceived. One of the things you wrote in there, um, I think this is verbatim was that you wondered if your desire to live in Homeland, which is this very nice neighborhood, was connected to a seeming fondness for ancient white power. Is that a question you answered during the writing or does it still exist for you? Yeah, so it's a, it's a, even that line, you know, I, I, I can't uh, recall, you know, what's still on either end of it, but the idea is, is that, uh, in, in, in the places that I know best in the United States, you know, which at this point now, right, would be like Atlanta and Baltimore, um, uh, Black Americans who have a similar background to my own are fairly reluctant to move into neighborhoods like these historic neighborhoods, you know, that are created um, right at the moment of um, the formal well, it's their informal racial covenants, but it's sort of like the first emergence of uh, formal American segregation um, prior to the codification of 
American um, habitational segregation patterns through the Federal Housing Authority and the New Deal um, program and projects. So in other words, that's in the 1930s that creates you know, pretty much the America of today. But the turn of the century, um, 19th to the 20th century um, America is becoming um, f formally segregated in a, um, uh, a, a, a private way is, is maybe the best way to sort of phrase it. So for whatever reason, you know, I'm drawn to these, um, you know, uh, Frederick Law Olmsted Company um, landscape parts of the U.S., right? You have them in Baltimore, in Atlanta, in St. Louis. You know, it's, it really is, you know, sort of a ubiquitous design where you have, you know, sort of a large um, central park. And then you have these parkland neighborhoods, usually somewhat adjacent or, you know, not too far from the, the central park. I mean, the one in Atlanta on Ponce de Leon is uh you know it's i think it's 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 quite beautiful right i mean to to this day but for whatever reason uh black americans aren't necessarily drawn to the sacrifice required to live in these neighborhoods you might be updating old houses you might be paying you know top of the market price for you know a place that doesn't have so many bedrooms or bathrooms um you know many of the amenities that are connected to these neighborhoods are 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 uh, cultural and aesthetic, um, very maybe much less so practical, and um, you know offering you know sort of a, 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 a immediate um, a, a, a result or, or or consequence, and 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 so you know that would be like the structural side of it, but then the the social side of it, of course, is that you're moving into neighborhoods that have, you know, legacy homeowners and also have um, residents, uh, you know, who would like to see the, um, the neighborhoods continue as they, as they have been in the past. And, and I, I have found it uh, fascinating that even though many of the neighborhoods are located sort of centrally in the cities, which, you know, enables ease of access, at least to the downtowns, that uh, they still have not sort of caught on um, with, you know, uh, my generation of black educated people. Um, so that's part of the um, the thing. I, I guess that I am I am uh, wondering if there is a a, a kind of a, a tangible value in um, enjoying uh, 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 life in a neighborhood like Homeland. But then at the same time, I, it occurs to me that, you know, like, hey, is there, is there something wrong with me? Like where I'm, I'm, I'm really keen on the, uh, the stone facade or, you know, the, uh, the dentilated cornice or something or the slate roof or the copper gutter. Um, that is like um, a, a part in a in a historic sense, a part of my fondness for bondage or servitude or something. You know, am I the am, 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 am I misunderstanding something? I'm the person who's like, no, we shouldn't run away. Let's stay on the old farm. Or you know, uh, Booker T. Washington always said that you know you wanted to even after emancipation you wanted to leave for a little while and then before you came back to show that you were really free. And as you know, am I the person who's like who can't get away from these places that are 
absolutely embedded in the um, the legacy of segregation. And then as I show in the book, I mean, it's also uh, chattel slavery. I mean, you know, the, this wasn't like where I live today wasn't like a huge plantation. They actually didn't have so much of a plantation system this far north in Maryland. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, enslaved people lived here and uh, maybe buried not far away. Um, and so, you know, it's just sort of puzzling through through that um, contradiction, I suppose. Uh, you know, like I say, irony, contradiction and paradox are 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 rife in uh, in this work. But what what is what does it say about the um, the homeowner? What does it say about me as a person who desires um, some of the aspects of uh, um, American uh, uh, middle class, upper middle class life? And uh, is that also some sign of being, you know, sort of unfit for something that? you know, potentially could be um, much richer and uh, much deeper in terms of its opportunities for human sociality. And that is a, um, that's another place of, um, of wrestling for me, you know, uh, am I the person who also um, is short-sighted and chooses structure over the, um, again, I mentioned the density of human relationships. And I would love to say that, oh, you know, I'm always the person who is like, you know, I'm a great uh, proponent, the vigorous proponent of, of humanity. Uh, but then uh, sometimes I think I enjoy as much the clean, well-lighted place. Yeah, that's interesting, the idea of the clean, well-lighted place, because I was thinking about the title, which is I, is very deliberate, I assume, called Shelter, and it's not called Home. And I, I was curious about, for you, the difference between Shelter and Home. And I was thinking that because you, you talk about your sons and your custody with them, and you end up with custody of one, and one of them comes to visit you. Um, but I, I was wondering if as a father who can't live with both of his sons, if that affects your idea of home, because home may be beyond the building. Um, those were just some of the things that I was thinking about. So I, I wanted to ask you about what home meant and, and your title. And that's like the most poignant question I think anybody's asked me connected to the project. Um, I suppose the good news for me, and I think for my youngest son is that he's going to come to Baltimore for high school. Uh, so at the end of the summer, which is pretty terrific. Um, but uh, I think that you have uh, lodged on a, um, a distinction that's significant. Um, and, you know, again, in my, um, my um, uh, wrestling with the pursuit of a particular kind of um, inviolable um, middle class, it's like a, a plateau, I suppose, more so than a pedestal, um, an, an inviolable plateau of middle class standing um, instead of, and, and this is back to the contrast between, you know, the social and the structural, instead of, you know, getting a home, what you have is a, is gussied shelter. Um, the, 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 the reason 
the structural reason for um, uh, 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 buying the the house, and I talk about this in the first chapter, you know, is that it it uh, we're also at a place where you know we're just making these um, snap and often lockstep economic decisions. And the idea is, you know, not so much, you know, or you don't have enough time to think, is this the place for my life? Um, it's always, you know, is this the place that I can resell at a moment's notice or that will be attractive enough to the market that, um, you know, it will um, make financial sense. And giving ourselves over to this logic is, um, you know, one of the, uh, the, 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 the places of, 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 of strife in, um, in the work. The, uh, the opening epigraph is from uh, the first African-American elected to the Baltimore City Council, and he uses the term shelter. Um, and, you know, um, Harry Cummings is saying, you know, around 1911 as this problem, Baltimore is the first place to create uh, where the city council tried to um, segregate uh, the city by block by block. And uh, they exported it uh, throughout the South, but um, it was not, uh, it did not withstand judicial scrutiny. However, um, it created a series of customs that were then, you know, sort of carried out or wound up being somewhat effective. But that, you know, this, this early African-American elected official thought that the, the key way to um, uh, produce the outcome of national belonging, American citizenship, full citizenship rights, you know, was purchase a home, pay your taxes, you know, do the things that the other citizens are doing. And, um, you know, you will, you will bear the fruits of legal protections, you know, I mean, essentially. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's fascinating that uh, uh, Cummings, who, you know, was like, moving black families onto blocks where, you know, basically they were uh, going to have, you know, rocks thrown through the windows and fires set outside and where it wouldn't be safe, you know, to, to enjoy your home, um, that it was also, you know, sort of right on this, right at this crossroads between, you know, sort of the home and then just the, um, the practical structure of the shelter, the shelter that was the, um, the engine of the economic markets. And in that way too, you know, for me, you, know, you can see sort of this wrestling with all of these um, uh, Protestant figures, you know, sort of it's like in Pilgrim's Progress and, you know, you sort of have the Pilgrim uh, with their shelter at the rear and the, the Bible under arm. And it's sort of like, you know, the wrath of God is, coming down upon them. Uh, and, you know, also in, in um, other of the uh, uh, English uh, writings, you know, sort of from the um, 17th century and, and 18th century that I've studied in school, but, you know, so I never noticed um, <laughs> so some of the, uh, the more interesting themes or the ones that would become relevant to me, um, especially later. So yeah, that's uh, the, 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 the book is also, I suppose, attempting to think about what does it mean to have a home and you know, what is necessary to achieve that. The, the thing that I wind up um, centering on the most uh, you know, has to do with this concept of the maintenance that's required. And it's the maintenance that turns 
maybe to turn the phrase, the maintenance that turns the shelter into the home is, um, is one that is uh, seasonal and, um, and enduring. And, you know, you don't get that, you don't get to um, the next place without the, um, without the steady maintenance, without the commitment, without the participation. So where is the balance for you when you write between emotion and fact? Um, the balance for me is toward fact. Uh, I'm not sure why that is. Yeah, it's uh, it is toward fact. The, um, the that place probably slips uh, when I try to rely on memory, uh, which is less stable, <laughs> uh, or has has played me false, I suppose. But uh, yeah, for me, I I am intrigued uh, by what I'm able to you know sort of get my hands on that I would you know think of as the historical record, um, and you. You 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 work on those on those features. I talk about woodworking in the book, and the you know as you sort of go through the different stages. I'm 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 like I'm always at the early apprentice uh, stage as a woodworker or carpenter. I can't call myself a carpenter at all, but anyway, just to, just as a woodworker. But anyway, you learn ultimately the value of the sand, paper, and sanding, and. Uh, I, I would say, I would say if the, the the nugget of fact in my in this project, you know, is constantly being refined with the um, with the sanding of emotion, um, it maybe works that way. My last question before I get to the final ones has to do with what you want people to get out of this book if they pick it up. What do you hope they walk away with? I, I <laughs> someone has asked me that before, and I have actually thought about this one a little bit differently now. Um, yeah, it would be fantastic if someone would read Shelter. Let me start again. After reading a few days ago, a woman uh, uh, came up to me, an Episcopalian, a uh, white woman Episcopalian, and she said, you know, um, I had been involved with the, um, the Diocesan uh, Reconciliation and Reparation Committee, and uh, it was an important journey for me because uh, I'm she said she was from a slaveholding family or family that uh, enslaved people and uh, she mentioned a couple of the things that I talked about um, with the book and the neighborhood of homeland which was called Job's edition uh, in the early 1700s as um, you know an enabling a, a fuller um, uh, recognition of the, um, the the nature of her own historical experience, but also the connections um, to people far and wide, but maybe especially to black people in this metropolitan area. Um, another person asked me what were the um, did I did I think that the names of um, prominent historic Marylanders and the the most prominent would be Carol, um, if they uh, if the African Americans who had been enslaved uh, by the Carroll family or families like the Carrolls had continued to use their names and were there in contemporary times you know actually two branches 
a black branch and a white branch of these um, uh, revolutionary era or um, you know uh, colonial uh, Maryland era families. And so I, I hope that the book um, actually does a bit of that, that people read the book and um, which you know only has a little bit on the um, antebellum history side and a lot more on you know sort of the contemporary Baltimore and some dimensions of um, Baltimore inner workings in politics. But I would hope that they would understand that rather than uh, b- black Americans who still comprise the majority of the city, the city is shrinking every year, but rather than uh, black Americans as being you know sort of like, um, either completely distant, foreign, or unknown, um, that uh, these are actually um, family members and that the, um, the divisions and the lines across the racial lines, across the, the racial divide, which is you know as significant here in the um, city and in the county as anywhere in the United States, that they are um, most artificial and that in the same way that one bears responsibility uh, and an obligation towards one's uh, family member, that we bear an obligation and a responsibility for the totality of the, uh, uh, the region. And, you know, if, um, if we uh, dislike the, um, the you know pick your poison right if we dislike the uh, the state of of crime in Baltimore uh, that's always the thing that's pointed to as the, um, the, the 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 thing that is dissolving the social fabric the thing that's destroying the possibility for investment um, the thing that is making public education um, unstable but you know, if we if we want to change, you know, sort of any single dimension of uh, contemporary experience, that we have to take upon us the um, the the necessity of these uh, uh, family obligations. Um, I, I I think that it's sort of a great game that's played much of the time where you know, uh, people from the suburbs or maybe the more affluent sections of the city will sort of drive through the city on their way to the stadiums or the waterfront and, um, you know, sort of can easily bypass um, less affluent members of the community and then sometimes um, members of the community who are actively uh, experiencing extraordinary trauma and think of them as being, you know, sort of these people from, you know, like another world. But that is, it's an extreme illusion. Uh, We are not very far generationally removed from, you know, the time when uh, white Americans lived on the uh, large boulevards and black Americans lived on the alley streets um, perpendicular to the boulevards or, you know, sort of adjacent in the rear and worked in the homes and uh, where there was certainly a um, a hierarchical oppression within that social community, but nonetheless where people um, had another sense of what the relationships were and the places of belonging. 
And I, I, I think that some of that um, uh, sense of uh, connectedness um, needs to resume for uh, a more thoroughgoing and democratic um, transformation to take place. So the book in, is, 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 a, is a plea for a, um, a, a, a rejuvenated city, a better city. And I talk about this, I think this is in chapter five, where, you know, like I created a, um, it's a free jazz concert in the, the center of uh, the Black West Side uh, to, you know, sort of give people an opportunity to get to know their neighbors. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I can. Um, after our conversation now, I do sort of wish that I had maybe chosen one that was like a little bit different because <laughs> I feel like I've been sounding like super professorial. <laughs> and, and this 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 uh, this is going to, you know, it, it won't uh, disabuse people of that notion. But, you know, nonetheless, right. This is what I this is what I prepared. This is the first thing that came to mind when you asked that question. Uh, so I think that the one of the most I think that the most important unread novel is Chester Himes' Lonely Crusade. And I think that in the work of Chester Himes, all of the questions, uh, all of the things that are exciting to us in the contemporary moment um, found their way into print uh, between 1945 and 1960. And I think that that's another part of the historical recovery that we need to have underway is that we need to pay closer attention to what what the record already um, makes available to us. So this is a passage from the um, novel Lonely Crusade. The hero's name is Lee Gordon. He's a college graduate from uh, California um, and uh, is uh, being groomed as a union organizer, but he's uncertain about uh, the position because he can't, it's the difficulties of communicating with his supervisors. And it's also important to remember that his father was uh, shot and killed by the police uh, in a case of mistaken identity. <laughs> now, Lee was in the position of either having to explain what was nearly unexplainable or appearing a consummate fool. It had taken him some time to realize the scope of the Negro workers' attitude toward unionism. At once, it was a curious mixture of logical antipathy and great expectation. For, wh- for while their cold racial logic told them that the union was also another racial barrier, their deep yearning for democracy caused them to expect from it not only the opportunity for full-fledged participation, but in addition, special consideration and privileges. They did not want to be just members. They wanted to be special members with rights and privileges above all other members. This had been hard enough for Lee to understand, and now before opening his mouth, he realized the futility of hoping that Smitty could. The thought processes of Smitty would not be the same as those of any Negro, They'd been planted in a different soil and cultivated differently. And Lee knew this, but he attempted the explanation because it was congesting within him and had to come out. First, he argued that no more discrimination existed than in the plant than there would be after it had been organized, that the lack of Negro lead men and foremen, both before and after organization, would be attributed to seniority. By seniority, white workers would be promoted to higher paid jobs and Negroes employed to fill the lower paid ones. And what had the union to offer that would relieve this? Nothing. For the basis of unionism was also seniority, which seemed right and just. The union would always press for the establishment of the rigid rule that the first to be hired should be the last to be fired, and that promotions to higher ratings should also be based on length of service. 
But Negro workers read it the other way. Lee doggedly insisted that the last to be hired would be the first to be fired. And they would always be the last to be hired, first because of prejudice, and second because of their lack of experience. For how could a man get experience at a trade without ever having had a chance to work at it? Under the company merit system, Negroes could at least hope that by application and hard work, superior acumen and Uncle Tomming, that they might get a better job than they would by the process of seniority. They would accept discrimination because without unionism, they would expect discrimination. Lee Gordon struggled earnestly to explain the Negro workers' attitude toward discrimination, the fact that discrimination had become a way of life. They had accepted it as part of the role they lived, as a condition of existence, beginning with the ability to think and never ending. They had resigned themselves to expect no better. Do you want to say anything else about that? Well, I just, you know, I, I, as a child, I would always ask my dad, my God, how could you accept segregation or discrimination? You know, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you rise up? Uh, you know, why not, uh, I don't know, become an expatriate, lead the rebellion, uh, you know, be the martyr, uh, you know, sacrifice yourself, you know, commit violent acts, right? And of course, uh, the, uh, the nature of um, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Chicago, right? The nature of uh, violent acts uh, uh, committed by African-Americans is always understood uh, completely beyond any political context, right? These are just the criminal acts of individuals. It's always presented that way, right? But there's another context for the nature of uh, violent acts uh, among African-Americans or in the American uh, national political scene. And, uh, you know, I mean, again, for me, Himes had the, in a, in a very uh, specific, uh, particular and deliberate way, um, acknowledged the blend of um, uh, contradictions that gave the dilemma of the black worker attempting to overcome the condition of, um, again, the expectation of discrimination and discrimination as a feature of American life. I had a conversation with uh, someone that is a co-worker at the main private employer in the state of Maryland. And, you know, I mean, this person who is working in another branch of the university than I am is describing specifically the way that Black Americans are actively and aggressively discouraged from pursuing um, higher work ratings or uh, uh, workmen's training, workmen and women's training uh, capacity. I mean, that's the nature of our society and system right now. Um, so, you know, that's why I always say that um, uh, people should uh, return to Chester Himes or, you know, he was he made a huge investment in trying to get it on the page early on. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Uh, this is from the chapter Epiphany Boys. Epiphany, excuse me. This is from the chapter Epiphany, Sunday Boys. My toft and croft and homeland has obliged me to drive other roads to church. Now my Sunday morning duty to defend the faith of England, Scotland, Ireland, and France, as the Maryland property ledgers from the 17th century used to remind the pilgrim, takes me down the Jones Falls Expressway to exit at Mount Royal and North Avenue. 
The western skyline of the intersection is dominated by the Maryland Institute College of Art dormitories. The field where we had run riot so many years ago hosts a four-story MICA housing complex. Recess at my old elementary middle school has become a tepid, corralled affair. The traffic pattern is restrained too. The city has installed a bike lane on North Avenue traveling west for the people who do not live here quite yet, but it wishes to attract. If we catch a crowd at light and a boy comes to the window with a squeegee in his hand, I decline the windshield wash and press dollars and coins into his palm. There is a debate over whether or not the guys are entrepreneurs or villains, but I admire the gritty boys hustling and working together inside their age group. They are at least momentarily declining the vigorous exploitation of the drug corners. My dad's voice comes back to me about the intrinsic value of venture work that he called hustling. Critics of the squeegee boys, a venerable occupation since the 1980s, have long remained hypocritically silent as truant children in desperate need of minimal education relay narcotics and dodge maniacs and bullets. Their loud objections come when poor boys and girls make themselves obstreperous in public, trying to improve their condition by legal means. Baltimoreans of today rarely recall that George Herman Ruth was such a boy nor do we wish to face the reality that our city can easily contain the living conditions of the first, second, and third worlds, or the seemingly incompatible epochs of feudalism and capitalism in a single space. I tuck change and small bills into the compartments of the car for them and go out of my way to palaver encouragingly. I can be as fearful of strangers as the next person, but with just a little verbal courtesy, even when my purse is empty, the Sunday boys strike me as somber and reflective, adept at some Bible verse, eager to share a prayer. And do you want to share why you chose that? The, the, uh, the, the book has gone through um, quite a bit of um, revision. And um, some of the sections, you know, it was like trying to juggle these um, blocks or building stones um, into place. And one of the struggles that I have as a writer, um, you know, it does have to do with like my own sense of humor, which is the thing that I indulge uh, the most. Um, and then um, also my own particular sense of history. And so I, 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 I often can forget, or it's easy for me to forget um, that I don't have the same uh, comedic or historic assumptions uh, in place or in a shared place with, um, you know, sort of a prospective audience. So I, I need to, I, I have to, to work myself to, um, to, to, to strike a good balance um, that way or, uh, places where I, I have to um, restrain my uh, sense of humor and then also to try to ease in um, different places, different uh, dimensions of the uh, historical record. So when I started working with these property records, I was trying to figure out who owned the um, the lot in Homeland, you know, and I'm like at the 
at the end of the 1600s. And then I, you know, I couldn't get over, you know, sort of the language and, um, you know, how closely connected private property, property acquisition, and what would make a, um, a title to property in, enduring uh, 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 in the minds of um, late 17th century Englishmen, you know, was absolutely connected to, you know, the pro- propagation of the faith. And then the, um, the person who represented God on earth, the, the sovereign, the monarch. And uh, I, I, I kept trying to figure out a way to get that, that, uh, that dimension of uh, leaving Homeland and going to going through Sandtown to the edge of Sandtown, Upton and Harlem Park, where my church is located. Sandtown is where we had our uprising in 2015 um, after the uh, death of Freddie Gray. And uh, it's the place where I have my annual concert. But just, um, you know, trying to, to tease the, um, the different elements and, and to condense them without improperly silencing um, the spirit or, you know, again, my own, let's call it my comedic virtue. Uh, that was the that was the the challenge there, and I I, I I I was at work quite a while trying to um, to strike the the right balance, and and also I mean this is the this is the key thing uh, for me, Mitzi, is that I am I am working as hard as I can to be honest. We have a controversy here because the guy who's running for governor uh, became known to the public and, you know, it was like on the Oprah Winfrey show because he wrote a book where he compares his trajectory to the trajectory of a person who was, you know, uh, uh, significantly less fortunate and who winds up being in prison for life. And, you know, he, today this person uh, running for governor is being accused of like inauthenticity or, um, you know, sort of taking advantage of the misery of one person to, you know, sort of present himself to the public. And he's, the main thing is he's accused of, of faking his connection to the city. And I, I always want to be incredibly accurate, you know, sort of about like, you know, the community that's produced me, um, where I live today, the way that I'm trying to raise the family that I have. But at the same time, the way that I see um, connectivity with so many other parts and places of the city and the people of the city. And I, I mean, I try to do that very deliberately in all of the chapters. And so in that opening to Epiphany Boys, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to pull a lot of it together. My, um, uh, in one place or in two paragraphs, my um, uh, schooling there in the seventies, the conditions of today and, um, uh, the uh, gentrification that is uh, underway, uh, or <laughs> the hopeful gentrification, is what it is actually from the um, point of view of the developers in the city. Where do you write? Uh, so, I, back in the day, I used to write at an indie coffee shop wherever I could find one. Uh, that's always been my preference. Um, since COVID, I've been writing at the Cherrywood dining room table that I made with my son. And then sometimes I write in the, um, uh, the sun porch where I can sort of look onto the azalea bush and the holly. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? 
I try to uh, to rest. I close my eyes. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? So I, when I this is a, a snarky answer, but um, like the rapper Capadonna from the Wu Tang Clan. Um, I have a by myself meeting every evening. I have a by myself meeting and I communicate with uh, my inner crystal Gallatin. And this is sort of an inside joke. Uh, that's a classmate of mine from 66 who then went on to become a classmate of uh, my closest friend at uh, Walbrook senior high school. But uh, when we were children, we were playing ball one day and uh I don't know. We were. I was playing ball with uh, my friend John Price, and um, Crystal. Crystal hit me in the chest and knocked the wind out of me. Now I would say that that probably happened more than one time. Um, not so much with Crystal, but just uh, in elementary school. <laughs> Excuse me. But uh, but it was certainly it was certainly memorable. And she followed it up with some uh, some uh, inimitable the inimitable idiom of uh, Crystal Gallatin. She she was a she was a a legendary uh, uh, primary and secondary school student. How have you dealt with rejection? Rejection is the major driver in my emotional life. Um, it is my most faithful companion and my existential antidote, right? Rejection is the thing that uh, prevents me from being suicidal in the existential uh, schema. And what it is the thing that I can count on. And what is your favorite word? My favorite word is juice, which is also my earliest word. Thank you so much for your time and for this conversation. I'm deeply appreciative. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, it's great to get to know you. Thank you. If you like today's show with Lawrence Jackson, author of the nonfiction book Shelter, check out my interview with Sajil Shaw, author of the essay collection, This is One Way to Dance. We talked about the neighborhood she grew up in, invisibility and hypervisibility, and the experience of being read as a writer of color. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 360 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Zena Hashem Beck, Charles Baxter, Elizabeth Strout, and Lydia Yuknovich. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.